Uh, we've been in this series on the book of Daniel, and I'll give you a quick little backstory, and then we'll enter into the story uh, that we'll be reading here today. So we'll be reading kind of a large portion of Scripture. Um, but the story of Daniel basically takes place around 600 or so years before Jesus. So if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, so 600 years prior to that, um, in the land of Israel, the people of Israel, God's people called the Jewish nation, uh, had turned away from God, and God had been warning them for a long period of time, like, if you don't wire your hearts rightly to pursue me, to walk after me, to, uh, to love your neighbor, to take care of those that are in the margins of society, in the community, at some point, God says, I will, I will remove my protection over you, and foreign invaders and empires will do what foreign invaders and empires do, which is they conquer, and they destroy, and they take off into other foreign territories, which is exactly what happened with the people of Israel and in uh, connection to the uh, the foreign militaristic world superpower called the Babylonian Empire. So the children of Israel were basically ransacked as a nation. They lost the temple. They lost their city. All of these things that they had known. It's kind of like uh, uh, 9-11 on massive scale. Their entire nation as they had known it had been destroyed. Um, many of the Jewish people that were kind of in the higher echelon, the elite of the elite in culture and society, they were taken from their hometown of uh, Jerusalem and the city of of, or the cities in Israel, and taken off into exile into the region of Babylon, otherwise known as modern-day Iraq. And so there they lived for a lengthy period of time. And the whole idea of bringing these highly educated elite force Jewish minds over into the Babylonian Empire was to basically give them a job so that they would then work for the Babylonians. But in order to become Babylonian workers or part of the workforce, they needed to have their Jewishness erased and they needed to become Babylonian. They needed to learn the ancient myths and mythologies and ideas and creation narratives and all that. And they needed to become Babylonian, which kind of puts Daniel into a really unique situation. Because here's Daniel, who's Jewish, and his many buddies that are also Jewish. And yet there are these forces that are trying to erase their Jewish identity and to replace it with Babylonian identity. And what we find in the story of Daniel is that did not happen. Daniel remained Jewish, and though the forces and the currents were very strong and powerful, and though there were occasions where Daniel and his buddies were threatened to either, you know, become Babylonian and deny your Jewishness, or you're going to die, they're like, we'll, we'll die. Like, throw us to the lions, throw us to the fire, do what you got to do, but we're, you're, you're, you will not change us. So there was radical resistance on Daniel and his friend's part, but it was not a violent resistance. It was a resistance nonetheless, that they always came out over and over and over again on top. And the reason why I think this is such an important book for us to think about, I'll show you this quick little slide of just kind of a summary statement, and we'll kind of begin to look at the text. The big question that we've been kind of asking along throughout this is how can we faithfully live as participants in what God is doing in our world without being swept away by the opposing currents. And this is exactly what the book of Daniel is all about, that Daniel and his buddies remain deeply faithful to the ways of God in spite of deeply influential Babylonian culture in attempts to remove their Jewish identity. So this is why this has become such a, I think, poignant book for us to think about because we live in a culture that's not benign, you know that. It's deeply aggressive in trying to shape us into its ideological framework and concepts. To erase the stories maybe that you and I have either grown up or 
you know, been brought into that we would call the gospel idea, the gospel narrative, to erase that and to give us another alternative narrative that, that's, that does not look like the heart of God. And the question is, is, is how are you going to fare? Are you going to just become part of the culture, or will you resist it, resist it and go off into some other extreme? And one of the things that we'll look at, and then we'll circle back and begin to look at this, we've been giving you guys a diagram for the past several months that kind of looks something like this, and I'll just go through this real quickly. So the, the two um, extremes that you and I can either drift off into, which Christians historically have also drift off, drifted off into, is on the one hand, separatism and or secretism. And what we've been suggesting is that we see with the life of Daniel is that he remained faithful in exile. And we've been looking at that as a, as a model or template for us that while we are in uh, San Luis Obispo, Central Coast, culture, California, America, you know, all this that we see, again, like I said, it's not benign. It's deeply, aggressively trying to shape us into something. The question is, uh, which way will we drift? How will we navigate this? Will we navigate it by drifting off into the extreme of separatism, which involves isolation, withdrawal, um, or criticalness of the host culture, which is just constantly looking at culture and judging it and then creating its own Christian enclaves and so on and so forth, or uh, we drift off into secretism, which means we wholly and or uncritically embrace the ways of the host culture. Um, one is fear-based. It's deeply fearful of what might become of me and my identity and myself, so let's hold on to our Christian uh, culture and ideas and enclave. Or, or the one is syncretism, which is just defined by compromise, where uh, you, uh, and, I was, and I've been saying this for the past several months, is that I think the greatest danger for you and I in San Luis Obispo is not necessarily separatism. There are, there are those, I think, for the most part, that exist in the modern church. But I think in San Luis Obispo, for the most part, our greatest danger is more along the lines of syncretism, which uh, th there's no distinction between you as a follower of Jesus and everybody else. In other words, you, you drink alcohol just like everybody else that drinks alcohol. You party just like everybody else. You do life just like everybody. There's no distinguishing features between you and the rest of the culture. And this, this is a problem, too. Both are problems. Both are deeply problematic. Um, but what we're suggesting is there, we're asking the question, is there a way to live faithfully before God, even in spite of a culture that's deeply influential, and, and powerful, and that we would call living the way of exile, uh, which is living with this host culture, serving those that are present, and yet at the same time longing for, or holding on to, or having some sort of conception of an alternate kingdom that we actually belong to. And that's what I would suggest Daniel and his, his buddies did. And it's kind of an amazing story. Now, with that being said, we come back to the story of Daniel chapter 9. Um, Daniel chapter 7 begins a new series of the second part of the book of Daniel. First part is chapters 1 through 6, which is Daniel oftentimes for the most part his narrative and or him getting uh, visions or him, him uh, being shared visions from others and him interpreting. Daniel chapter 7 on to the end of the book is Daniel for the most part having these visions that then get interpreted in some cases by angels. And that's what we see here. It's, in other words, the, the book definitely pay, takes a radically different shift towards the end, which is what we're at right now. And what we, one of the things that we've been saying all along as well is that there's going to be occasions throughout the book of Daniel that we fly really low to the ground, we look at details and ideas and unpack certain even words in some cases, uh, and then there's other occasions where we're going to fly really high above the text and just kind of 30,000 feet above it 
make some um, broader, broad scope um, observations. And to some degree, that's what we'll be doing a little bit today, but then for sure next week, because we'll be looking at three chapters that are, that are pretty meaty and pretty large, but again, we're going to be flying above it, and then we will wrap up the book of Daniel and be done with it. So with that being said, what I want to do right now is I'm going to read uh, Daniel chapter 9. Uh, as Daniel receives this, this vision, he receives himself some sort of unique vision. It tells us exactly when this took place. And uh, Daniel is, uh, at the same time, will make some observations as to what um, the practices of Daniel are that are really unique to the passage here. Um, but then Daniel begins to feel some degree of, of, of compassion and uh, like desire to be a part of what he's doing. So he begins to pray. So Daniel chapter 9, for the most part, is, is Daniel's prayer. And uh, so that alone should be interesting. In fact, I would even suggest that on your own time, that when you come into the Bible and you read passages that are someone else praying, uh, those are good occasions to just slow down a little bit, maybe uh, you know, drink a long cup of coffee, go for a nice long walk, begin to read it meditatively, prayerfully, and ask questions like, wow, what's going on here? What's the posture of the person who's praying? What's their heart like? And what are the contents of what they're interacting with God? And how are they interacting with God? And how is this an invitation for me to interact with God myself? And, and that's what we're going to take a look at is really this, this prayer of Daniel. So I'm going to begin at verse 1. We'll go down to verse 23, and uh, we'll make some observations, and then we'll jump back into the text. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 starts like this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord of Jeremiah the prophet, must Come to pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely the 70 years. Hold on to that phrase, 70 years. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, and I sought him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, and yet we have sinned. And we've done wrong, and we've acted wickedly, and we've rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and your rules. And we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us open shame as it is this day. Uh, and to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are very far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed themselves uh, to you. Uh, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings and to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which set before us by his servants, the prophets, all Israel has transgressed in your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers and ruled by us, bringing upon us this great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has been none uh, done anything like what has happened against Jerusalem. 
As it is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has been brought upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all of his works that he has done. Uh, we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made your name a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger, your wrath be turned away from the city of Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins, because of the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword of all around us. Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear uh, and, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God, because of your city and all the people who are called by your name. Now Daniel's prayer is over. Now this kind of shifts into another scene, verse 20. It says, while I was speaking and praying, I love this. So Daniel's apparently not only praying, but he's also like talking to God. He's one of those guys, if you walk to him and he's like talking out loud, you're like, What's wrong with that guy? Is he crazy? No, he's apparently just talking to God. He's praying. He's like interacting with God. So it says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, and his holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, which is kind of crazy. This parent messenger Gabriel shows up in flight. Again, it gets really odd and weird, but again, this is what's happening. Daniel's just kind of recording all this, these events that are taking place, verse 22. And then he had made me understand, speaking with me, saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your plea, for the mercy of the word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And then he finishes by giving this vision in verse 24 all the way down to the end of the chapter. He describes what he says are 70 weeks that are to create, create upon the people of Israel and then uh, a series of events that are going to take place. Um, but what I, basically, it's a future event that's about to take place. But Daniel is deeply troubled by all this. But what we're going to see with regard to Daniel is he begins to pray. So, so this right here is the word of God. I want to pray, and I want to begin to take a look at some observation, and we'll wrap it up. So... Jesus, thank you so much for who you are, and we ask you, God, right now that you would open our, heart, our hearts, our eyes, and our understanding to be able to see and understand, and more importantly, to be transformed by the things that you intend to communicate to us here this morning. Uh, help me to be faithful to the text as best as I can, uh, by your grace, by your mercy. So we uh, entrust all things in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It was a lengthy section of scripture. You guys endured it. Congratulations. Good job. Um, so what I want to do right now is I want to just jump in to begin to make some observations here. I want to take a look at just first. I'll go through these really quickly. Um, are just three different themes that I see kind of arise throughout the passage. Again, there's probably more, but for the sake of time, here's three. Number one, God hears prayer. This seems pretty obvious. Uh, Daniel prays. 
Uh, it just kind of dovetails into chapter 10. Um, whatever it is that Daniel is interacting with God, God actually hears it. And it doesn't seem to be like God's hearing it because there seems to be these gaps. Have you ever prayed and there's just gaps? Have you ever prayed and there's just echo? Have you ever prayed and you're just like, what am I doing? I think I'm losing my mind. Um, God actually hears uh, the prayers of people that are turning to him. Uh, secondly, we see that more is actually happening than we're oftentimes aware of. And this becomes obvious in the story when some random messenger floats in, right? So if you're reading that, you're just like, you're not moved by that. You're not paying attention carefully to the text. That should shock you. Like, wait, what the heck? Like, A, who is this? B, where'd they come from? C, how they just float in or fly in? That's the point. The point that I would make is this, is that the world that we live in, uh, even though the pundits tell us it's just a materialistic world, and that's all that there is, what taste you can feel, you can touch and interact with, that's all there is, uh, the materialism, is that the narrative of the Bible is that that's, that's, not, that's not untrue entirely. It's, it's only partially true. The reality is there is an unseen realm that is very much real, and we see stories throughout the Bible that there are these interactions and oftentimes overlapping between the terrestrial realm and the celestial realm. In other words, the things that are tangible versus the things that are intangible. And this is what we see right here. So there's more that's going on than oftentimes that we are aware of. Thirdly, we see that there are roles that God exclusively plays. So for example, at the very end, I didn't read it, but I made allusion to it, that Daniel is told by God through this messenger that uh, 77s are determined upon the people of Israel. Uh, well, uh, the natural question is, who determines this? Like, who's, who's the active like leader in all of this. Well, apparently God. Apparently God. Uh, God's doing something. God's, God didn't ask. He, he's not looking for your opinion. He's not like, trying to get, you know, you're not a counselor to God. He didn't go to you. He didn't check out Wikipedia. He, apparently, whoever God is, he just makes decrees. <laughs> and apparently he has full freedom. That's what we would call full freedom to just be God. And this is, this is God. God apparently makes decrees. There's things that only God does. And yet there's other things that we're told, especially in this passage, that there are things that God uh, wants to partner with humanity to do things. Uh, pause and just reflect upon that. Um, there are things that, that only God will do, God can do, God is up to do. And then there's other things that God actually is consistently inviting you into partnership, which uh, requires um, some degree of volition on your behalf to either say one of two things, uh, actually one of three things. Well, one is, is, is yes, Lord. I'll do what you want. Or, no, Lord, just remain in rebellion and obstinacy. Or the other is just like, maybe later, Lord, which is a form of, you know, the second one. But the idea is, is God invites us, apparently, to partner with him, to do things. Again, uh, we, we can, all we want being like, man, I wish more people were generous. Well, my question is, are you generous? Like, are you generous? Well, I just wish other people were generous. Well, dude, like, you have control over your wallet. If you never give away, then then you have no platform to talk about other people not being generous. It's like um, God, God invites you. Like God's not going to go spend your money for it. I mean, he could, but the point of the matter is God invites you. Be generous. God invites you. Use your time and your energy to serve, to give towards other people that are in need. Like, like God, God can't be generous for you. He invites you in with this partnership of relationship of saying yes to him, and then he empowers you to go and, and do that. So there you go, three things. I want to jump now in to the life of Daniel, because one of the things I noticed with regard to Daniel, that's fascinating to me, and then I'll, I'll give uh, just this, this bigger picture. When I think about the life of Daniel, 
is Daniel is basically 70 years old, or at least 70 years. Most scholars believe he'd be between 70 or 80 years old. So when, what I noticed about Daniel is, is he's, a, he's an exceptionally old man now. Uh, in other words, he's, he's been doing this thing for a very long time, and yet there's something about Daniel that's really unique. There's this long obedience in the same direction that Daniel's remained faithful to. So as I look at the life of Daniel, um, there's a handful of things that really stick out to me when I think of his life, that Daniel had these practices that were just a part of who he was, and those practices shaped him. It's what some scholars and theologians, a guy by the name of James K. Smith, one in particular comes to my mind, he talks about liturgies. You know that you and I have liturgies. It's kind of a religious word, but you and I have daily liturgies that we engage in, some of which we don't even know that we're engaging in. And that, you know that one when you wake up first thing and you grab your phone and you turn on Instagram? That's a liturgy. You don't even know it's a liturgy. In other words, it's a habit, it's a practice that you instinctively just, just move into that. But the fact of the matter is every liturgy that we engage in shapes us. Every little action, every little you know, mindless duty that we do shapes us into something, somebody. The question is not if I'm doing it. The question is what is that you are doing, doing to you? That's the question. You understand that, right? What are the things that you are doing? What are the habits, the proclivities, the liturgies that you are deeply, daily, that are part, integrated, part of your life? What are those habits doing to you? And uh, what's amazing when you look at the life of Daniel is that he has these habits and practices, and they're doing things to him. <laughs> they're, what they're doing to him is they're making him faithful over the long haul. So here's Daniel, 75, 80 years old. Who knows? And... Okay, so here's my question for you. Um, what type of a person would you or could you be if your life encountered the most unbelievably chaotic situation you could ever imagine? You lost everything, your mom and dad, your home, everything was stolen, taken from you, uh, devastated, sabotaged. Everything that you had ever built for or put your hopes in was now gone. And not only that, you're living in a foreign land under foreign occupation, foreign oppressors that worship a different God than you, that have different values than you, and you have no voice whatsoever in that context. What type of a person would you be? Most of us, I think, would be like just ticked, angry, embittered. And we would engage in these daily practices of like, I wish these people would die. Like, like I wish my world would be different. I wish those people that hurt me and offend me and oppress me and cause pain upon my life would just vanish and go away. But the exact opposite is Daniel's life. Here he is, 70, 80 years in a foreign occupied territory, everything stripped from him, and he's deeply engaged in the well-being of the community around him. It's mind-blowing when you look at this, again, think about this. So there's at least four things that we can look at. I think the text is pretty clear. I just want to look at and we'll wrap it up with some summary thoughts. But as I look at this, that Daniel uh, had these practices of searching the scriptures, turning to God, confessing sin, remembering his identity. So let's take a look at each one of these one by one, and we'll wrap it up. Number one, Daniel had this practice of searching the scriptures. We see in verse uh, uh, one, he says, I, Daniel, I per two, I perceive from the books that the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah, the prophet. Uh, so what we see here with Daniel is that Daniel's actually engaged in reading the scripture daily. It's a part of his practice. Um, you know, all these questions arise, like where did he get the text from? And uh, well, we know that that there was a prophet named Jeremiah. We, we, we know because we actually have his book. It's in the Bible. Um, he was actually writing letters to the exiles in 
in Babylon. And this, this is no doubt the letter that Daniel received. So not only did he receive it, but he actually engaged with it and read it. Um, many of us have Bibles, but we might not engage with those Bibles uh, frequently. But here Daniel is engaging with Scripture frequently, asking God daily, what is it that you have to speak to me in this, through this? And Daniel, as he's uh, open, opening his Bible, he's also opening his heart, and he's wrestling with this. And I think probably Daniel is looking at this reality and he's saying, man, 70 years were determined upon the people of Israel. And Daniel's kind of looking at his calendar. He's like, oh, my gosh, we've been here for, who knows, like 65 years. You know, Daniel's calculating, man, it's just 70 years. We're going, maybe, and again, I'm just hypothetically saying 65. We don't know exactly, but somewhere around that time frame. Daniel's looking at this whole thing. And he's kind of calculating. He's like, oh, my gosh, God's about to do something. Maybe I can be in part of this. Maybe I can participate of whatever it is that God's doing. And he begins to pray, begins to engage with God. And, but he had this practice of just searching the scriptures. Second thing I see with regard to Daniel is he also had this practice of turning to God. Uh, what I find that's really unique about Daniel's way of turning to God is um, in the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might, which is if you've ever seen like an image or a picture of Jews at the Wailing Wall, have you ever seen them just kind of like read the scripture and they're like bobbing? I remember one time being there and I was like, man, what, why do they do that? What's the whole point of that? And the idea behind that is that it's the way of saying energy. My energy. My energy is being given to God. It's my whole, total. Not just my mind. Not just my heart. It's just the, the, the power that pulses through my, my body. It's all part of whatever it is that God wants to do. And I want all of it to be given over to God. And we see that with Daniel is that Daniel's not just giving his mind to God. Uh, he's not just giving his emotions to God, but he's giving some total of everything. And we see this in the way that he turns to God. If you notice again, he says, I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, pleas of mercy, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And what's this whole sackcloth and ashes thing? So the sackcloth and ashes idea that's there is deeply integrated into Jewish culture that has to do and ties in with this concept of, of uh, pain and sorrow and um, suffering and, and dealing with other people's uh, woundedness and brokenness. And when someone engaged uh, with grief, they would put on sackcloth and ashes. It was a way of basically healing. Sackcloth is kind of like burlap, right? So imagine clothing yourself in like a burlap, you know, pair of jeans, right? Or a burlap dress or whatever it is. It's super uncomfortable. That's the whole point. It feels horrible on your skin. And it was a way of reminding you, my soul's in grief right now. So, so is my whole sum total of my being. Like it's in grief. It's a reminder of me that right now, uh, the sum total of my being is going to take this grief and bring it to God. And that's exactly what's happening right here. And so what I see with regard to this is a, the exact opposite is, is um, the, Daniel uh, just being apathetic. So uh, next slide, big kind of picture slide, uh, we, that we see that even after 70 years, I already alluded to, that while Daniel was in exile, he was not apathetic, he was not cynical, and he was not critical. So I'll come back to that in just a second here. Instead, he was full of compassion and emotion for the state of brokenness that was all around him. Do you see that? So now, again, listen to this again. Fast forward to Daniel chapter 10. I'll just read this passage, and I'll come back. Daniel chapter 10, uh, again, he gets another like, little vision that's happening right here, and we see another form by which Daniel engages with this vision. It says in verse 2, In those days that I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks, I didn't eat any delicacies, no meat, no wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself with any lotions. Uh, for three weeks, the whole point of the matter is, for three weeks, my soul was in a state of unrest and sorrow for the state of my people. And so, therefore, 
I aligned my, my body and my functions up with where the state of my soul was. In other words, we would call this grieving. He was engaged in grief over the state of, and the condition of the world around him. And rather than just doing what our culture constantly wants us to do, which is to numb ourselves. Next slide. As we think about this, um, that our culture actually specializes in numbing us to the pain that's around us. Um, that anguish and compassion oftentimes have been substituted for uh, cynicism and criticism. I want you to think about this. We live in this culture that when we are awakened to grief and loss and sorrow and pain, we don't know what to do with it. We really don't know what to do with it. So have you ever been around someone and they just start crying? And you're like, oh, my gosh, uncomfortable. Can you please stop? Like, I don't know what to do. You start checking your watch. You're, like, going on social media. Like, maybe I'll just record this and put it on my Instagram story. Like, I don't, this so, I don't know what to do with this. We don't know what to do with grief. So here's what we do. We, we numb ourselves to it. So, you know, that's, we, we imbibe some sort of mind-numbing, you know, futile information just so that it'll take our mind and our heart and our feeling off of the grief that we're watching exhibited right here. Or we just become critical, like, what's wrong with them? You know, it's like, or we become cynical. We're just, you know, so we, we choose, our, that's our medication. We don't know what to do with the brokenness around us, and we respond in the ways that Babylon is saying, here, take this. And what I would suggest to you, that there's a gift of empathy and emotion and feeling that many of us just don't have. But it's part of being human, and it's part of being an image maker, an image bearer of God. And it's part of what we see oftentimes unfold. And I would even go so far as to say that every breakthrough that's ever happened uh, throughout the history of God's involvement in humanity always is precipitated by a feeling of anguish and brokenness. Every breakthrough. In other words, it always begins by someone seeing pain and brokenness and sorrow and suffering and feeling that deep pain and sorrow and suffering and praying about that deep pain and sorrow and then entering into it. So, for example, we see with, with Jesus. Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over it. And then he walks into it. It's a pattern. Weeping, walking. Weeping, walking. Uh, what we oftentimes do, again, as our culture, uh, which means there's a propensity for us to be more heavily influenced by how the culture wants us to think about uh, pain, suffering, grief, and sorrow, is to just simply become cynical with regard to it. You're like, ah, same place, same thing. It's never going to get any better. Or we become critical, and we just like constantly point out the flaws. But what I think the invitation of the gospel is, is to, to feel it, to weep over it, and then to walk into it and say, I'm going to be part of this. And we, we see this is how move, moves of God begin. And if for some reason you look at your heart and you just you feel that sense of coldness, um, God can change that. God can reshape that. I remember when we first moved to San Luis Obispo, just get a little personal here, that when, when we first moved to Slow and we lived in a house right downtown, um, we didn't have any kids, my wife and I, and so um, I would just go downtown a lot and I would walk around because we were so close to downtown. And I would just walk, and I would just—I remember just praying, especially going downtown, like at farmers market. Now, now I'm old, and I've lived here for a long time. We actually tried to like avoid farmers market, which is probably not a good habit. But the point of the matter is, is uh, there was a day and a time where I would do this more frequently. But the point of that is, I remember walking through the crowds and uh, just just asking God, God, help me to make contact, eye contact with people—not in a weird, creepy way—but like to, to to see, to see what you see, to see the anguish and the grief 
that they're um, sustaining and feeling and begin to pray, God, give what is my role in being able to be an agent of change and help and gospel and love and kindness and humanizing action in people's lives and as opposed to just simply looking at grief and brokenness and pain and loss and, and becoming critical and cynical and or just simply numbing ourselves from the reality of it. I would suggest to you, this is what God invites us into. Um, so I want to move on as we continue to go, because the fact of the matter is for many of us, uh, there's a lot of areas that we, you, you may never be wired to lead worship. Please don't lead worship, because you're not, you might not have that gift. But um, others of you might not be able to ever teach, and, and the thought of actually standing up in front of an audience of people like what I'm doing right now absolutely terrifies you. So you, you may never lead worship, you may never preach, you may never lead a small group. But there's one thing that every one of us, I don't care who you are, where your gifting is, where you're not gifted, is we can, we can pray. We can pray. We can engage with the heart of God and, and begin to ask God to unleash his resources of heaven so that we can be those agents that God wants to use. We see that with Daniel. It's amazing when you just consider his heart and his life. So uh, thirdly, I see with regard to Daniel, not only did he... Uh, have this practice of searching the scriptures, returning to God. We also see him confessing sin. So there's this deep, acute awareness of Daniel's um, imperfectness, which is, this is an interesting thing about the story of Daniel. Um, by the way, just interesting, you know, tidbit of info about the Bible in general is that the Bible has no problems pointing out the deep, fatal flaws of its main characters, right? Um, give you a case in point, the story of David, King David. David's known for his greatest victory, and he's known for his greatest failure, right? On the one hand, he's known his greatest victory. It takes out Goliath, right? Greatest failure, you know, happens to have a, all happened on one night, you know, with Bathsheba, and I had to take out her husband and killed him, you know? I mean, you're like, whoa, wait, what? You went from, like, greatest heights to the greatest depths? Like, yeah, the Bible has no problem pointing out the failures. Daniel, on the other hand, is really unique because he's the important character in the story, and never once is anything negative mentioned, mentioned about Daniel. Never, not once. No negative thing. Nothing it doesn't mean that Daniel is perfect. It just means that the way that the story is framed, there's no uh, attention drawn to Daniel's imperfections or failures. Um, and here's Daniel leading the charge. God, I confess my sin to you, and I confess the sin of my people to you, and I confess you know, how our hearts have drifted from you. Daniel had this practice of confessing his sin, confessing his broken ways to God. And then thirdly, what I want to finish up on is this final thought, is that we see that Daniel also had this practice of remembering his identity. And I think this is really important, that we see kind of a little bit in the story. I'll just kind of make allusion to it in verse 20. He refers to my people, the people of Israel. He's part of a tribe of people. Um, again, fast forward, Daniel's been in captivity for 65 some odd years. He's an extremely old man now. He also, one final thing in verse 21, I thought just really astounding to me, is that it says that while I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel shows up in the first vision. Now, again, if you're paying attention to the story, that, that little detail should cause you to like be like, what in the world is happening? You're like, Angel Gabriel, who is this guy? How did he, where did he come from? But to me, like as I'm reading the text, is the, the real astounding thing to me is not so much Gabriel, um, but the fact that it says at the time of the evening sacrifice. So you got you to know, understand a couple of things. Number one, um, just quick you know, status update. How is the condition of the temple right now while Daniel is in Jerusalem? Oh, there, there is no temple. 
there is no temple. That's the answer. Like, there is none. It's gone. It's been gone for almost 65 years. Um, on top of that, Daniel is an entirely different nation than from where the temple was. So the question is, is how are the process of evening sacrifices going? Oh, that's right. There is no evening sacrifices. There hasn't been evening sacrifices for 60-some-odd years. So the question is, what in the world is the text telling us here about Daniel's praying at the hour of the evening sacrifice? What tells us is that Daniel never forgot his identity. He never forgot, I belong to Yahweh God and these people of Israel. Um, we live in a really unique time where our culture has unleashed, I would even go so far as to say, kind of a Pandora's box. That basically, on the one hand, is good. And I mean, it's good in the sense where it's created a large-scale ability for us to ask these questions like, you know, what are my dreams? And, you know, we've been wired since, like, youthfulness, or since we were kids in kindergarten, like, you know, what, what do you dream about when you get older? We ask like, little kids that question all the time. What do you dream about? What do you want to be when you get older? And that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I don't have any problem with that question. And, but we live in a modern Western consciousness right now that basically has created uh, uber-individualism, hyper-individualism. And, but what I think we fail to take into consideration, this is fairly modern. This has not been going on for thousands and thousands of years, maybe 100 to 200 years, maybe 300 years max. It's more of a modern invention in the West. So the question is, is what was there prior to that? Well, what was there prior to that was groupthink, meaning uh, you became whatever it was your tribe was. So if, you know, whatever it was that your family of origin was, or whatever your tribe was, or whatever your ethnicity was, you became that. I mean, there's all sorts of hosts of, you know, um, Disney movies that kind of play into this theme of like, I'm going to break ranks from that, you know, narrative that my family is giving me, and I'm going to live into my authentic self and become who I really want to be. And what I would suggest is there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it is a distinctly Western frame of thinking. On the one hand, it affords us an incredible amount of freedom to begin to make conscientious decisions of what do I really want to do? And who would I really want to be? And who am I at the very core of all that? The, at the very beginning of this, who am I? And the, how, the way that we answer that question is really, really important because it plays in this larger concept of our true authentic self. Like, who am I at the very core of who I am? And therefore, whoever I am will ultimately determine who I become and what, I, what I'll do, what I'll do for a career, what I'll do for a job, or if I'm in the wrong job, it's because it, I, I, I hate this job because it doesn't play into my authentic self. Or if, in a, if I'm in a marriage, I'm not really happy in this marriage, it's probably because my real authentic self would rather be married to this person and not that person. And what happens is it creates this, this Pandora's box, as I mentioned. Um, and what we oftentimes fail to recognize, is I'll make a statement here, is that there is a restfulness that comes from receiving our identity from God, which is what we see here with Daniel, versus the exhausting pursuit of having to discover our authentic selves, which is always followed by this endless promotion and affirmation of whatever that authentic self is. And here's, here's what I mean by this. Okay? So I'll pack this. We oftentimes are told, like, you've got to discover what your truest authentic self is, as if somehow that's the most easiest job ever, and, and you just got to put your mind to work, and then immediately you're going to kind of figure this whole thing out. But what we fail to consider is it's not as easy as what we think. In other words, we're not just given this blank canvas that we can just then begin to throw paint up on it and begin to determine and figure out who my deepest, truest, authentic self is. There's at least four 
major contributors that reshape or influence our ability to do this well. I'll go through these real quickly. Number one, I don't have them up on the screen, so just listen. Number one, our family of origin. Our family of origin. We are actually shaped by mom and dad, <laughs> and maybe even by mom and dad's mom and dad. Um, and the older you get, the more you begin to look at your life, and you're like, oh my gosh, this characteristic trait, it's just like my dad. Or I can't believe this, I'm just acting like my mom. Or my mom just came out of me right in that moment. It's not, it was not necessarily me, that was my mom's taking it. You know, we deal with that. And our family of origin has this tendency of shaping us. And the second thing is our peers. In other words, we live in the context of community, and our peers have incredible amount of weightiness in terms of helping us or thinking, helping us to think about who we really want to become. Because if we're in the midst of peers, and our peers have a particular way of thinking about things, we don't want to violate that or buck that system unless you're an eight. Um, I mean, but the point of the matter is a whole other discussion. But the point that I would make is this, is that we, we live in this world where we want to basically, for lack of better words, um, conform but not conform. So that's why you can be in Portland, Oregon, and, and everybody's like indie rocker. You're like, wait, there was a time that only like a small segment of society was like an indie rocker. Now everybody's an indie rocker. And it's like back in the 80s when I was like reaching my prime as like punk rock. It's like you know, the, the minor, and I lived, grew up in Huntington Beach, and so I, of course, swept up in that whole punk rock scene. But the point of the matter is this, is, is that at some point when everybody becomes a punk rocker and you're indie, like, it's kind of lost its potency. You're no longer an individual. You're just part of the whole group. So our peers have a powerful influences on us. Uh, thirdly, culture, media, and ultimately trends. They, they shape us. Uh, there's all this modern research right now that's kind of been going into the modern technological world in which we live in. If some of this might just be geek stuff for you, but hopefully it's of some degree of interest. But we live in this world today where we think that we are actually consumers of stuff, uh, but in reality, we're being consumed upon by some of these larger technopolies, technologies that are actually using us to farm information and content. And it might sound a little bit conspiratorial, but it's not, I promise you. But the point that I would make is this, is that we are actually being shaped by Larger culture at large. I'll give you a prime example of this. Um, months ago, I watched it. I just watched it again last night. But the Fire Festival on Netflix, you got to watch the documentary. There's a lot of bad language in it, so just be aware of that. But the point that I would make is this. To me, it, is, it, is, it taps into exactly what I'm talking about here. So the Fire Festival, if you're unfamiliar with it, was a festival about two years ago that was um, there's some big, you know, big younger, big wig guy from New York City that, that promised the best party of the entire decade, right? Entire generation you know, with the best hip-hop artists, the best supermodels, the best influencers. And so what happened was these influencers kind of went on social media, Instagram, with this, like, little orange, you know, square. Like, this is going to be the best thing, and if you are anybody, you do not want to miss this thing. So literally this thing went viral. Hundreds of thousands of people signed up for it. I mean, tickets were ridiculously expensive, 8000 all the way up to $250,000. This thing was literally raking in millions and millions of dollars. Problem is, is when it came time for the actual fire festival, it was on a rent. It was on an island that was like off in the Bahamas. Um, everything literally came crumbling down. So what was perceived to be this incredible party that you do not want to miss out, FOMO, because uh, you have to be there because everybody's going to be there and everybody knows it's going to be the most amazing rage party of the entire world. Um, we don't want to miss it. When it came time for the actual fire festival, people showed up and they're being fed cheese sandwiches on white bread and their little housing things that were nothing more than tents that were soaked in water. It was an absolute uh, meteoric disaster. But there's a story in it. And the story is everything from a marketing perspective and everything in terms of social media, that the way it was projected was 
the party you never want to miss. The whole thing was a disaster. The point that I would make is this, that we live in this culture that is telling you you need an identity. It's, but what we're not being told is that in order to obtain that identity requires an enormous amount of energy, creativity, and ability, and innovation, which in and of itself is exhausting. But it doesn't end there. Because the flip side of once you discover your authentic self is you've got to invite others to affirm your authentic self, which means you have to become aware of the social media platforms in order to project yourself in order to be affirmed. So here's my question. What happens if you discover your authentic self, you go onto social media, you promote it, and you get a bunch of dislikes or rejection? Or worse, you're invisible. You're left with despair. And that's our world. I'm suggesting to you that whole world that we're told that's called freedom is a fire festival in disguise. And I'm suggesting to you, Daniel had an alternative way that was more life-giving. He had an identity that was given to him by the one who loved him and gave himself to him. And I would suggest to you that this is exactly what the gospel is all about, is that the exhausting practice of trying to be innovative and creative and to market your own self-authentic identity and then promote it and then to be affirmed and accepted and loved and liked and brought into all these other areas of acceptance, at the end of the day, will leave you deeply exhausted and tired and broken and full of despair. That's where some of you are right now. I see it. I know it. I talk to people all the time. This is our world. We're being told this over and over and over again. This is the path to life. I'm suggesting to you it is not a path to life. It's an alternate narrative. It's an ultimate, uh, alternate gospel that promises much but will always fail to deliver. And what we see with Daniel is exactly what we're invited to see without, throughout the entire New Testament is that the good news, the gospel, is that in spite of how broken we are, how ruined we are, how messed up we are, how much we have marred the very image of God in our lives, God wept and walked in to our brokenness to do something about it. And the invitation for us is to not innovate some sort of new like, religious ways to connect with God. Really, it's actually tapping into the ancient practices and rhythms that have always been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Confession, sin, turning to God. Reminding ourselves as to whom we belong. And then asking God to use us in the midst of his redemptive work. So, as we go to the table right now, and as we respond by singing, as the worship team comes on up and leads us, I don't know where you're at, what type of circumstances you're going through, but my invitation to you is to ask God, God, what is it that you want to show me? What are those areas in my life that you're inviting me to give a good hard look at, to do business with you on to lay at your feet, to confess before you those things that I've held on to, 